0: Or we commit ourselves, our friend to you, our time to you this morning. And ask you to lead and guide, Lord, to speak as it pleases you to each one of us. Help us to to hear and see those things from your word you want for us this morning. In Jesus name, Amen. The book we're in this morning uh, deals with two. Kind of big picture, big world view questions. One is, why does God take so long to answer prayer? Or, why does God leave things the way they are so long? Why doesn't He do something sooner? The other question is, why does God punish and, disu- punish and discipline the righteous while the ungodly go free? Big, big picture questions. These questions are coming from a prophet from a guy who knows God and loves God, speaks for God, and yet he's raising the same kind of questions you and, you and I face uh, probably every day. You know, it's why God and how long. So if, just to put this in context, make it personal for yourself as we start getting, how many times do you say to God something like, how long are you going to leave this circumstance I'm in? Why? I've prayed to you, I've asked for change, and nothing changes. Lord, why? How long? Or, have you ever felt like you're in trouble, you ask for help, and the answer is more trouble? That's this morning, too. Yeah, same thing. Anyway, these are the kind of questions we struggle with, The, the why and the how long questions. That's exactly what's brought up in the text we're in this morning. We are continuing to major in the minors. We're in the book of Habakkuk this morning in the Old Testament, and Habakkuk is uh, struggling big time. He is asking blunt questions of God because he's desperate. He's personally desperate. And you know, too, if you're hurting and if you're confused and if you're just trying to figure up from down because of what's going on in your life, that's the way you feel. You're desperate. And Habakkuk's desperate. And I was thinking about this in Genesis 32. Do you remember when Jacob is coming back from his 20-year sojourn in Haran? He's coming back to Canaan. And the night before he's going to be reunited with his twin brother Esau, the angel of the Lord comes and visits with him and wrestles with him through the night, the text says. And if you just read the Genesis account, it says Jacob won't let him go and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And it sounds kind of straightforward. Well, you read Hosea 12 and it says he wept and sought his favor. And the picture is this. Jacob's facing his brother who 20 years ago said, I'm going to kill you. And he's coming back, and now he's got wives and children to take care of and to protect. And he knows Esau, with 400 soldiers, is coming his way. So he is desperate to hear from God. And he he says to the angel, Lord, I won't let you go until you bless me because of his desperation. He's got to have something from God. Habakkuk's a bit like that this morning. He is troubled. He is vexed. God's telling him some things. He's seen some things in his life and he's troubled, and he's got to hear from God, and so he's asking blunt questions of God, why and how long. By the way, I'd say he's not disrespectful in this. You know, you and I can't hurt God no matter what we say to him. He's above any hurt, but showing respect is appropriate. He's respectful, but he's desperate, and he's kind of he's in God's face, as it were, with these questions because of that. Habakkuk, just to put this in context... Most of us forget where the prophets lived or when, you know, in the minor prophets. I don't know if this helps you at all. Uh, But Habakkuk lived in a a great period of transition in the 600 B.C. period. So you know as we've looked at the other minor prophets, we've talked a lot about the Assyrian Empire and Nineveh. (coughs) Habakkuk lives to see the end of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. He lives through the reformation period of the last good king in Judah, King Josiah. And when Josiah got the throne, he enacted all these restoration moves. They got rid of all this idolatry stuff in Jerusalem and Judah. They reinstituted and cleansed and repaired the temple, and things were going great. The trouble was, when Josiah died, was killed by Pharaoh, uh, everything went back right the way it was. So Habakkuk lived through this great time of spiritual renewal, and then he saw everything fall apart after Josiah's death. Things went right back the way they were before. So he's been talking to God about these things. By the way, too, like the other prophets, there is so much. Uh, my my last point I could talk about all morning, and we're doing a whole br- a brief book survey. <clears throat> so I've told myself I have to stay on my notes. It's kind of a it's a race through Habakkuk, but we'll try and cover the main bases. Habakkuk's name. Actually, the meaning of his name is unclear, but embraced or embraced by God's the best guess. And as we start Habakkuk, how many here have read Habakkuk in the last year? Yeah, yeah. And actually, that's generous. I wouldn't expect that many hands. Let me just encourage you by telling you Habakkuk is one of the great books in all the Bible. And just something we'll look at at the end Habakkuk's one verse in Habakkuk. I, would, I don't think this is an overstatement. One, one verse, in fact, a fraction of one verse in this book that most of us never read has probably changed the course of world history in the last 500 years more than any other verse in the Bible. And when I wind up, you can tell me if you think that's an overstatement. The first thing, the first question <clears throat> for Habakkuk is, why is God taking so long to change things in Judah? What's up, Lord? Why won't you come back and make things right? Starting at Habakkuk 1, I'm going to jump in at verse 2. Did you find it anyway, Habakkuk? Okay. Uh, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you won't hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted." Notice the words he says, iniquity, wickedness, destruction, violence, strife, contention. None of these things are good things. These are opposed to God and God's knowledge and holiness and all the things Habakkuk knows God's after. So he says, Lord, this is going on. How long must I call out to you for help? And you're going to leave things the way they are. You know, in my life, I don't have to think very long or very hard to think, I've, I've asked God these same questions, Lord, how long, I've talked to you about these issues, how long, and then how often do I talk to God about it, and it, go, it doesn't just not get better, but it does go literally, it goes from bad to worse. And you and I with Habakkuk, oftentimes in our life, we think things are going to get better, or We think, surely if I wait three months or three years or whatever, then it'll change and everything will get better and go away. And, you know, the months come by, the years go by, and it doesn't. And that's where Habakkuk's at. He knows the situation isn't honoring to God, and he's saying, hey, what gives? Why don't you come in and change it? By the way, I love the fact that here's a prophet going to God, asking the hard questions, no different than I do, or no different than you can. I think it's absolutely appropriate when you're confused, vexed, frustrated, whatever, you don't understand what's going on, that you go to God and say, God, what gives? Sometimes he answers and tells you, and sometimes he doesn't, and that's his prerogative. But I love the fact that Habakkuk's going right to the source with the question. Habakkuk's going to get an an answer from God. God's going to answer, but it's not going to turn out to be what he wants to hear, But God does answer about uh, ending the injustice that's going on in Judah. So at verse (coughs) 5, God replies, Look among the nations and observe. Be astonished and wonder. I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. We call the Chaldeans commonly the Babylonians they are dreaded and feared their justice and authority originate with themselves their horses are swifter than leopards keener than wolves in the evening their horsemen are come galloping their horsemen come from afar they fly like an eagle they come for violence their horde faces forward they collect captives like sand they mock at kings they uh, heap up rubble to capture cities etc they whose strength is their god <clears throat> Habakkuk's saying, God, things in Judah aren't right, so I want you to come in and make them right. And God says, okay, Habakkuk, I'm going to do that. I'm going to come in and I'm going to make things right because I'm going to wipe out Judah with the Babylonians. I'm going to judge my people, I'm going to discipline them by wrecking their country and taking them captive to Babylon. So you can imagine Habakkuk. He's probably thinking, Lord, you know, give us another king like good King Josiah. Come in, clean up the mess... And we'll get back to life as it was, the good life. And God says instead, well, I am cleaning up the mess, but it's not the way you want. By the way, after the Babylonian captivity, Israel, the nation that's restored after that, never, uh, never has a major problem with idolatry again. So the cleanup God was after was actually deeper rooted, as it were, than what Habakkuk was thinking. God says there's more than a surface renewal to accommodate here. It's, it's more drastic. It's cancer. We're going to cut it out. So Habakkuk says, please clean things up. God says, fine, I'm going to wipe you out. And that's going to clean it up. And this is not what Habakkuk is after. This is what I meant about going from bad to worse. This now raises the second big question for Habakkuk. Because God's just told him he's going to take those evil, violent, pagan Babylonians to judge the, not pristine, but covenant people of God, the Jews. And so Habakkuk's thinking, how can the wicked be used to judge the righteous? Or how can God take the wicked Babylonians to judge the less wicked Jews? You see, to Habakkuk, this sounds unfair. If Johnny breaks the neighbor's window and Fred uh, burns the neighbor's car and God disciplines Johnny for the window, he's wondering, what about Fred? And that's what Habakkuk's doing. What do you mean we're, we're getting the ax? But they're the ones who need it worse than us. So he's wondering, Lord, this, is, this does not seem right. This does not seem fair. Habakkuk 1, verse 12. He's restating. He's trying to clarify. He's arguing his case here. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, or Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We won't die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor, those wicked Babylonians. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they, us? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them humans, like the fish, up with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net, and they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net. They burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Habakkuk saying this, two things. One, Lord, these guys are so wicked and violent, they gather up the peoples of the nation like a fisherman, pulls fish out of the sea. It's so easy because they're so violent. But Lord, besides that, they're so dull and stupid, they're they're idolaters, they're worshiping their own strength, their own military prowess, etc., as if a fisherman would worship his net because that's what he's catching the fish with. So it's as if Habakkuk says, Lord, let me tell you what they're like so you can change your mind because you don't understand how bad they are or how dull or how idolatrous or whatever. For Habakkuk, God is somehow violating his own nature of justice because he's going to use those wicked, dull, idolatrous Babylonians against the better Jews. doesn't seem right. Now, you can laugh about this, but he reminds me of Abraham. Do you remember Abraham in Genesis 18? Uh, Abraham's talking to the angel of the Lord who's come and told him he's going to go down and visit Sodom and destroy the city. And this does not sound right to Abraham because his nephew Lot and his family is living there. Maybe he knows others there too. But at least Lot and his nephew and his family. So Abraham says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, this doesn't sound fair. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? The key verse, verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked... So that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. See, Abraham thinks what it looks like God's doing is unjust and unfair. And of course, in the end, God doesn't judge Lot. Lot and his family are spared. They're taken out. But to Abraham, it sounds as if God, the judge of all the earth, is being unfair. And to Habakkuk, it sounds the same way. Habakkuk's kind of saying, Lord, I know we're bad. But we're not that bad. So why are you starting with us and not with them? Again, kind of as a way of encouragement, I I am comforted by the thought that if I can't figure out God's justice and I'm going to Him saying, Lord, something doesn't appear right, well, I'm standing with the likes of Abraham and Habakkuk. And so are you. And this is pretty good company. So if it looks like God's not doing things the way you thought he would or should, and you're questioning, Lord, how does this stuff add up? Because I know you're God of justice. Habakkuk said, you can't even look on evil. Abraham said, you're the judge of all the earth. You've got to do right. So how does this line up? I don't understand. You're in good company. You're with Habakkuk and Abraham when it doesn't make sense. Now, Habakkuk is confident that God is going to answer him. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to stand guard on my post. I'm going to station myself on the rampart. I'll keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. Habakkuk is confident God is going to answer him. He's trying to figure things out. He's confident God is going to answer his prayer and speak to him. First, God says, starting in Habakkuk 2.2, the first thing God says is, I'm not changing my mind. You may not understand it, and you may not like what I'm doing, but it's coming down the way I said. So the Lord says, Record the vision, inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run, or run away from the judgment that's coming. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Habakkuk, you don't like it, you don't understand it. I've got all that, but... I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge my people, Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom. It's going to happen. Write it down, bet on it, record it, whatever. It's going to happen just the way I said it would. But he follows up. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell Habakkuk that the Babylonians short-term look like they're getting away with something. But he says, really, they're not because then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to judge them too. Habakkuk 2, verse 8 he says of the judgment that will yet come on Babylon, because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you, because of the human bloodshed and violence done to the land of to the town and all its inhabitants. Verse sixteen, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you, excuse me, now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. I love this because if you know your history or remember Daniel five. God says about the disgrace that would come to Babylon, you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. You remember in Daniel 5, when the Babylonian empire falls, they're drinking, exposing their own nakedness. Belshazzar the king, the night the Medo-Persians conquer them and take the city of Babylon, literally fulfilled later. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you. Uh, The cup, in this case, meaning judgment. And utter disgrace will come upon your glory for the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land. God says, you Babylon, you who looted, you're going to be looted. You who showed violence to others, violence is going to be done against you. So God confirms to Habakkuk he is just and he does justice. And the greater wickedness is not going to go unpunished. God says, no, I will get around and I will punish Babylon also. It's not in the timetable. It's not in the way you want to see this done, but God says he will punish the ungodly. In the midst of the passage on judgment, God also gives a, a bigger picture response to Habakkuk than the relatively a near judgment of Babylon. He says in verse 14 about the future, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk won't live on earth till that time, but God says, Habakkuk, the day will come when the knowledge of me and my glory is so pervasive in the earth it's like the waters over the sea. That day's yet to come. All the earth will honor me. In verse 20 he says, But the Lord is in his holy temple, Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, God is reigning, he's ruling, and in the end, the earth will bow to God, to his justice, to his character. One day, these things will come true. It's not going to be in Habakkuk's lifetime, but it will happen, God says. Habakkuk, a better day is coming. To the question, why does God take so long to judge or to make things right, God really doesn't give Habakkuk a great answer. He doesn't answer very specifically other than to say he is going to come in and make things right. To the question, why does God allow the unrighteous to go free while the righteous are judged, God says it's not as if they get off. The unrighteous will be judged in the future. It might not be in the timetable Habakkuk wants, but God will judge the unrighteous also. Habakkuk's only three chapters long, and Habakkuk closes on a tremendously high note, which is his prayer, his response... God. It's a prayer. It has three parts primarily. One is an appeal for mercy. The second is a reminder or a declaration of the way God's intervened and saved Israel in the past. And the last one is just Habakkuk's dedication of himself, if you will, again, to God. Chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear... O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk essentially saying, Lord, I understand judgment is coming. You're not going to hold it off any longer. It's coming. And so in light of that, it's sure, and nothing I say is going to change it. Then Habakkuk kind of downgrades his request, but still makes it to God. And he says this, When you're judging us, when your wrath is displayed, I just ask for a little mercy. Lord, remember your mercy even while you're judging it. It's like if Johnny gets a spanking, he says, Dad, could you just lay it on a little light this time? Habakkuk says, I know it's coming, but would you remember mercy when that's poured out? Just a couple of verses continuing in chapter 3, but at verse 3, God comes from Tamon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Habakkuk begins this recitation to himself in God's presence about how God has delivered Israel in the past. So these are references to the area around Mount Sinai. He says, hey, God, we remember when you met us at Sinai, you entered a covenant with us, you came down in your glory, and you led us out from the south up into the promised land. Or in verse 11, he says, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Does this sound familiar? The sun and the moon, God's doing something. Joshua in his day, you remember Joshua commands sun and the moon stand still in the valley of Aijalon so that they could overcome the armies of the Canaanites. And Habakkuk recalls, God, you entered into the battle with us. You saved us. You delivered the enemy into our hands in Joshua's day. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Apparently a reference to Egypt and Pharaoh, the house of evil or the house of bondage for Israel. Habakkuk says, God, you delivered us in the past from the epitome of evil in their day, the world empire of Egypt in which they were slaves. You delivered us then. So he recounts in God's presence God's past deliverances. God's delivered them before. God will deliver them again. (coughs) Look at verse 16. He says about the message he's received from God, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk doesn't like this. He says about the message of the impending judgment by Babylon. He said his response, it feels like he's rotting away from the inside out. His bones, he trembles. I wait for the day of distress. Those people are, who are going to invade us. You can imagine if God told you three years from now, I'm going to bring disaster in your life. Your immediate thought would be, there would be this anxiety about what you know is coming. Well, that's what Habakkuk says. He's comforted in some large sense because God says the big picture is, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in justice. And the, earth, the whole earth will be subject to my rule. This will be good. But short term, Habakkuk knows, but we're going to go through the waters of judgment and it's coming, it's not going to go away. And so his initial response is, I'm just, I'm dying on the inside, I'm trembling, I'm shaking. But listen to what he follows that up with. This would be like if God told you, you've got cancer, it's going to be really terrible, then you're going to die. And we think, wow, Lord, okay, thanks. And then Habakkuk says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet or like a deer's feet and makes me walk on my high places. The high places were symbols of power and security. Uh, Habakkuk is facing certain judgment. He knows it's coming. And yet his bottom line in the end is, when the dust settles, God, no matter what happens, no matter how bad it is, no matter how much I don't understand or how frustrated I am, God, no matter what happens, I'm going to rejoice or exult in you. I place all my hopes and all my trust, all my dreams in you. This you talk about going counterculture or going against the flow of the appearance of things. You know, for you and I, we would phrase this differently. You know we might say, if the stock market crashes, or if I lose my job, or if I lose my health, or if I have a major failing, or if people fail me, if I'm betrayed, whatever happens, if I am the one getting cancer and dying, no matter what happens, God, I'm not only going to trust you but I'm going to rejoice or exult in you. This is life-changing stuff. And I confess of all the minor prophets that this is the eighth, I've been more challenged by this one than any of the others because it hits me where I live. What am I willing to trust God for? And when my life doesn't go the way I want it to or the way I thought it would, and when God's not fair the way I thought he would be and should be, what's my response Uh, I'm not sure I'm standing with Habakkuk here. Or standing with him very well. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is when you lose your job. Or your health. This is whatever. Your marriage failed. Whatever. Whatever you can think of. You know, Habakkuk's talking about things. There'd be no food. Or, you know, if an army came in, you know what they'd do? They'd ruin the crops. They'd cut down the orchards. They'd cut down the trees. They wouldn't leave you any food. He says, no matter how bad it gets, God, I'm going to trust you. And beyond that, I'm going to rejoice in you because you're still the God of my salvation. And I know that in the end, whatever happens between now and then, I know that in the end, you're going to make me like a deer walking on the high places, above all the troubles, above all the confusion, above all the despair. You've made me this creature for the high places. And that's where I'll end. Judgment's coming. I know it's going to happen. I'm trembling now thinking about it, but my bottom is, God, I trust you. And beyond trust, I'm going to choose to rejoice in you, knowing how the story ends. Psalm 46, I couldn't help but think of this. A Psalm of David. David puts it in these terms. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we won't fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. You know, the image here, I mean, close your eyes, you're in an earthquake. And the ground beneath you is slipping into the sea. And David says, I won't be afraid. At verse 10 in Psalm 46, "Cease, cease striving. Quit being anxious. Why? Know or realize that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. God's saying that to Habakkuk. I will be exalted in the earth. The earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Same thought, different picture, different scenario, but exactly the same thought. No matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter how much it looks like I wanted it to or didn't want it to, my bottom line is God is my salvation. He's my stronghold, and in the end, he's going to set me in the high, lofty place. We're closing by going back to chapter 2. I told you about the verse, change the course of the world. It's changed your life and mine, I absolutely guarantee. This is funny, too. I, I love this. In chapter 2, God is describing the wicked that are going to be judged. So he's talking about the wicked. And in contrast to the wicked, he throws in just a little line to say, in contrast to the wicked, this is what the righteous look like. So this isn't even a verse, this is a piece of a verse. This is just a fragment. So in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, behold, as for the proud one, his soul's not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. But the righteous will live by his faith. But the righteous will live by faith. In 1510, there was a super depressed monk who was crawling on his knees up the stairs of a church in Rome when the words of Habakkuk 2, verse 4, hit him. And you know who the monk was? Martin Luther. And he, Martin Luther's problem was... Uh, In fact, I'll read read some of his uh, phrases here, a little bit what he had to say about this. He was troubled. He was a troubled, depressed soul. And he knew that he was a wretched sinner. And he knew God was a righteous God, and he couldn't see how the two could meet. But he can't let go of this thought about God's righteousness and I'm here. God's righteousness and I'm here. And how do the two come together? And if you remember Roman Catholic theology from the time... You could beg, borrow, or steal your way, sort of, into heaven, you know. But the truth was, I mean, if you, you know, selling indulgences, uh, crawling on the stairs was a, was a form of penance, which would take off certain days or years out of purgatory for you. You know, this was the theology he was struggling with. And it was Habakkuk two verse four that pierced the sky for Martin Luther. He couldn't get away from this truth, and Habakkuk two verse four was the solution to his problem. The just shall live by faith. A one line in digression in Habakkuk 2 literally changed the history of the world for the last 500 years. It's changed every kingdom in the world. It's affected. It's affected all the missionaries. It affected the Puritans in England and France and Europe and all the missionaries that were sent out. This was the spark. This verse, this fragment of a verse from a book most of us never read changed the course of the last 500 years of history. This is what Luther said. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans, but a single word in chapter 1 stood in my way. I hated that word righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand as that righteousness with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God. Listen to this. Talk about your honesty before... This is a priest. It's a monk. It's a guy whose whole life is supposed to be about God, right? I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. God's not right. He's unfair because here's his standard and here is me and how in the world do I bridge the gap? I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless... I beat upon Paul at that place, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, <clears throat> excuse me, Romans 1, In it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. What's written? He who through faith is righteous shall live. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, verse 4 in Romans 1. Paul's struggling with the righteousness of God, and it's only Habakkuk. This fragment of a verse from a three-chapter book most of us never read, that was the liberation for Martin Luther. He couldn't get over this issue about his own sinfulness and God's standard of righteousness, and it was only on meditating on Paul in Romans 1, quoting Habakkuk 2, that the light pierced through and the Reformation started. The world has been affected more i believe arguably from a fragment out of habakkuk than any other verse in the bible in the last 500 years it sparked the reformation it sparked all the changes politically geographically you name it in the world since then for you and i and guys this is what i meant about we could talk just about this for a long time and and not talk about anything else Uh, for you and i what this means is you start the christian life by faith in christ that is lord you're righteous i'm not how do i how is that chasm bridged someone tells us that god's righteousness has been met in christ romans 3 he's our substitute through faith in christ not by works of man not by our righteousness we're imputed we're given the righteousness of Christ most of us though after that what do we do like the galatians we go back and we say god thank you for putting me in Christ giving me your righteousness and now i'm going to live up to your holy and righteous standards and and then what happens it it doesn't work and we're like luther we're saying god it's not fair cuz you're up here and i'm down here and i'm a christian And I'm in Romans 7 doing what I shouldn't do, not doing what I should do, and I just can't seem to get out of this hole. Well, guys, the answer is Habakkuk 2, verse 4, quoted in Romans 1. The answer is not you're working harder. It's not working smarter. It's not, in the end, it's not so much about you and I as it is about taking God at His word. It's about faith. And as I've been thinking about this this week, I'm just thinking, Lord, if somehow... I could get a hold of this the way Habakkuk did. It would transform every area of my life in ways I would like to see transformation. Can you imagine if your response to life was like Habakkuk's Lord? I don't like what's coming on, but I know you're just, I know you're better than fair, you're just, and I know you're going to set me on high in the end, and that no matter what happens in between, you're the God of my salvation. If the earth slips from under my feet, or the Nations come in and wipe us out. God, I know you're right, you'll do right, and in the end, we win. Can you imagine how much frustration, anxiety, fear, anger wouldn't be part of our day-to-day existence if Habakkuk 2 verse 4 was part of our life or more a part of our life? That is that our life was governed by trust in God rather than our efforts or our anxieties. If I didn't care what you thought of me or others thought of me, but just God, God's in control, God's my salvation, well, gosh, I'd be free of all kinds of, you know, angst about it. I don't need to impress anybody. I don't need to make sure all the bases are covered. I'm going to honor God as I know to honor Him and, and go on down the road. Do you see what I mean? Uh, Lord, my bills, I, I feel like I don't have enough money this month, but God, you're the God of my salvation. You make my feet like hinds' feet. You put me on my high places. I'm going to trust you for whatever comes... This would change every area of our life. The more we can get hold of this, the more liberation we would get. And like Luther struggling with this, the weight of his own sin, literally, it freed him to go on and see there's light, there's hope. I don't have to carry that because the just live by faith. And I'm not saying we don't. there's not obedience involved here. There's always that. But it's faith is the issue my trusting God for the future, my entrusting myself and my situations to him and saying, that's enough, that's enough for me. For you and I to live life successfully an emphasis on live, you know, we talk a lot about life in Christ and about really living, not just existing, but the quality of life, overflowing life, John 7, the spirit within us, overflowing kind of life. This is where it's at. We gain that by faith. We start our relationship in Christ through faith, but that's just supposed to be the beginning of a life that's exemplified by faith in Christ, by my trusting God and trusting myself and my situation to Him. Refusing the angst, refusing the worry, refusing the fear, the anger, you know, my taking things into my own hand, saying no to all that and entrusting myself to God. This is, this is reformational. Not just 500 years ago, this is reformational today for you and I. It takes a faith like Habakkuk's and David's and Abraham's and Luther's. That's what we're after. These guys aren't extraordinary in any more than you or I are extraordinary. These are the normal guys asking the same questions, facing the same frustrations, getting hung up on the same problems, coming to God, but their bottom line is, God, some things we don't understand, some things we don't like, but this we know, you're God. Matter of fact, you remember in Genesis 19, the next chapter from Genesis 18, God, you're the God of all the earth. Won't you do justice? Do you remember chapter 19? Isaac on the altar, the picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. God says, oh, I'm just, and I'll show you how just I am. The next very next chapter. It's good to be in the company of Abraham and Habakkuk when they're asking God the whys and the how longs. That's a good place to be. You're in good company. And then it's better to end up where they ended up, trusting in God and entrusting themselves and everything that comes down the pike to God, whatever else may happen. Let me close by reading a few words. I'll bet you know some of them. Inspired, no doubt, in some degree, by Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Written by a guy who knew their value. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he, the God of my salvation, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, going down though this world with devils filled or Babylonians overwhelming me or job failure or whatever, should threaten to undo us, we won't fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure. Why? We know how the story ends. Lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. Don't worry about it. This mortal life also, don't save your life. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the bottom line. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thrilled that in a dusty little corner of the back of our Bibles lies a book and a verse and a message so powerful, Lord, that it's affected the last 500 years of history. Lord, a verse so powerful that it transform us from sniveling weaklings to confident, bold children of of the king. Father, I pray that we entertain the company of Abraham and David and Habakkuk and Luther in our own lives and that we stand day to day in the company of the faithful. Lord trusting you, entrusting ourselves and our situations to you and your care, refusing worry, refusing to take things up in our own hand, as if we could, but Lord trusting you. Lord thanks to that we know in the end, you put all things right. You're better than fair. You're just. And in wrath, you have remembered mercy. Lord, most of all, thanks for salvation through your son, the Lord Jesus. Thanks that your judgment and justice were met fully in him and that we get the benefit of that in his name. Amen.